We're going to be in the book of James, chapter 2, sort of near the end of the New Testament, sort of-ish. James, chapter 2. We are in a series entitled, The Law of Liberty, which almost seems like a, a, a contradiction, right? That law and liberty exist they are not, and we saw that actual phrase last week in chapter 1. This week we'll be in chapter 2, James chapter 2. And it's a five-week study. We're not going to be able to tackle the first part of chapter 2, because as you see, this is going to be certainly enough. And so we're going to be beginning in verse 14, and I should start, um, even before I pray, um, You should know that this is arguably one of the tougher, I don't know if toughest verses, sections of verses in the Bible. Um, Paul in one of his letters even says that some scripture is tough. We know that. It's not all super easy to understand. Um, This is arguably one of the tougher sections in scripture. It is certainly one of the most debated sections in scripture, within the church, within Christianity, and outside with, with false religions, with false theologies, many of which are born from the perversion of exactly what James is going to be addressing here. And so I just want us to be ready for the full frontal assault that takes place in this verse. And, and some of you have very well maybe come across these debates and arguments, but, I, but I'm here to tell you that we have absolutely nothing to fear from this section. Absolutely nothing to fear. And so I think, and, and as we were praying before, Zach even said that, look, the, the great theologian, the, the, the Martin Luther himself struggled with this almost to the point where he didn't want it to be in the Bible, didn't want it to be canonized because it was so brutal, at least on the surface. It seems so brutal, but I want to hopefully clarify um, tonight and show us how we have absolutely nothing to be afraid of by this path. I, in fact, I've taught over it once, I've read over it many times, and every time I go over it, I love it more. Because I see deeper the heart of James, and I see what it really calls us to. And so, again, don't be afraid, we have nothing to fear. Um, the number one command in the Bible is fear not, okay? The number one command in the Bible is fear not. So we fear not, um, but we're going to pray, and then we're going to get going. Sound good? Everyone ready? Excited? We're going to close our eyes and pray, so if you feel like leaving, now would be the time to do it. Okay, so, Jesus, um, just, um, Holy Spirit, thank you for including this section. As you authored scripture um, and saw fit to put this in there, as tough as it is for us, I'm thankful that you did. And so now I I pray that that I would be in submission and rely on you, because the Bible says you interpret scripture, I don't. And so you authored it, Holy Spirit, and so I just ask genuinely that you would interpret it into the hearts of your people. I can't do that. I'll be diligent in my role, which is to proclaim the truth. But Holy Spirit, would you take a speech and turn it into a sermon, into the hearts of people? Would you take these words and embed them as truth? Would you calm us? Would you encourage us? Would you challenge us? And put us on mission for your glory. And so as we, as we go to tackle this Holy Spirit, we're entirely dependent on you. Entirely. 
I bring nothing to this passage. Holy Spirit. And so glorify Jesus in the process. We ask and we pray in his name. Amen. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Yes? Do we believe it? For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. The Bible actually says your faith is a gift. It was given to you. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Lest any man should boast. So it is by grace through faith. God layers his grace on your faith and salvation occurs. That is the salvific cocktail. His grace and your faith equals salvation. Not of works. Not of works. Some of you are still not convinced. Romans 3.28. Can I give it away, Zach? We're going through Romans next. Zach and I have been impressed upon this year to go through two massive books of the Bible. We are gonna, he's going to be teaching two weeks, and I teach two weeks, and, I, and he teaches two weeks, and I teach two weeks. We're going to be teeter-tottering through Romans this spring. I can't wait. So excited. Romans 3.28. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Apart from the deeds of the law. Some of you still aren't convinced. Romans 4, 5. But to him who does not work, you're like, okay, yeah, give it to that guy. So for him that does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, which is you before Jesus got a hold of you. So, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Thank goodness. No work, still accounted righteousness. See that? Some of you still aren't convinced. Romans eleven six. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Oh, because grace is getting something you don't deserve. So he says, if it's about getting what you don't deserve and you've done something to deserve it, it's not grace anymore. If it's by grace, not of works, it cannot be. Or if it's by works, it's no longer grace. Some of you still aren't convinced. Galatians, I'll switch books. Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even have believed, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, so if you want to be judged on the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Everyone pinch your arm, your bicep. Like, choose the bigger one, right? Your flesh, aren't you? If you want to play by the law, none of us justified. Some of you still aren't convinced. Galatians 2.20. I'm going to keep going. Hold on. It says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, this is big, then Christ died in vain. That's a big one. 
I do not set aside the grace of God, getting what I don't deserve. Because if righteousness comes through the law from following commandments, if that's how we receive righteousness, then Christ died in vain. We could do it on our own. Why the bloody mess? So you still aren't convinced. Philippians 3, 9. I did seven, because seven's a good number in the Bible. Likes to do things in seven, and so do I. Because there's a lot more. I just went with seven. And to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Have I made my point clear? The arc of the entirety of the Bible is that faith saves. Some of you are like, well, how, before Jesus, did you know that people were saved by their faith in Jesus? Now, they didn't know his name would be Jesus at the time. Jesus isn't in the Old Testament. He is, he's called the son of man. Their faith pointed forward to what the coming Messiah would do. So when people bug you and they say, well, then how were, how were people saved in the Old Testament? If it's only by Jesus, weren't people saved in the Old Testament? Yeah, what did they have a faith in? The coming Messiah. Who is the coming Messiah? Jesus. They had faith in Jesus. They didn't know his name, but details in God's story. Details. Could have called him Joe for all. It doesn't matter. Their faith pointing to the Messiah. Our faith points back to the Messiah. Everyone in the Bible is saved by Jesus. Everyone. Whether pointing forward in the midst of or reflecting back on the work of the cross. Everyone in the Bible is saved by faith. And so we've launched into this book, James. If you're here last week, you know that James was Jesus' half-brother. Half-brother. And the cool thing, maybe not cool, but the intriguing thing about James is that he didn't believe his brother when he said he was God. None of us would. Right? Right? Like, look, I need the top bunk. I'm God. <laughs> I did my best to convince my little brother that I was God when we were young. He's now a doctor in St. Louis, clearly doing better than me, okay? James didn't believe it. Jesus started his public, Jesus was like, you know what? I'm, I'm done with carpentry. I'm done with construction. I'm a rabbi now. James is like, still don't believe it. A year in. I don't believe you. I'm God. Two years in, I don't believe you. In fact, they say that Jesus' half-brothers and sisters at one point tried to apprehend him from his ministry because they, quote, it's in the Bible, said he's out of his mind. Your sibling claims to be God, you'd probably want to lock him up, right? Like, dude, you need to calm down on that. We need to have a family meeting stat. You need to knock that nonsense off. James didn't believe him. Three years into his ministry, James didn't believe him. By all accounts, had no faith that his brother was the son of God, who he was claiming to be, until what? How do you convince your siblings that you're God? It's very simple. You die and raise from the dead. It's all you got to do, in case you've been wondering the key. It's all you have to do. You have to be beaten to a bloody pulp on a tree, mashed, mangled, 
destroyed, put into the ground for three days, put into a cave for three days so that even if he was still alive, his body wouldn't have survived three days with no water in that state. Jesus died. And then he came out of the grave and had a fish sandwich with his brother. Now James believes. Now James believes and he becomes a giant in the faith. He's now a lead elder of the church in Jerusalem. Ultimately to his death, a mob came to James and said, look, take it back. Killed your brother, we'll certainly kill you. Claiming that this was the Messiah. James says he is. They took him up to the top of Temple Mount and they threw him off. Hit the ground. Didn't die. Church history records that he was praying for the mob as one of them picked up a stick and bashed his skull in. A fervent defender of Jesus until he met him in heaven again. This is James. And we saw that in chapter one, James immediately loves to put you into tension. He's not gonna stop. He starts by saying, count it all joy when you fall into trials. Those words shouldn't go together, should they? The world would say, fall into all despair, question everything, turn from all that you've known in face of trials. James says, count it joy, which is different than happiness. Not preaching the happy gospel. I'm sick of it. Hashtag blessed. Stop it. Stop it. But joy, happiness, and I'm pro-happy, by the way. Like, I love when happiness is great. I love it when things are going well. But when things tank, joy catches you. When your circumstances fall, happiness is based on circumstances. Joy is despite your circumstances. So he says, even in trials, consider it joy. Why? There has to be a why for that. Thank goodness like chapter one didn't end. Like, hey, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Are we done? Chapter two. He said, why? He said, because, and then as we, as we took a look, he said that this is a time when you will produce patience. Essentially what he's saying is that God will give you an opportunity in the trial to mature in your faith. That's why. Count it joy because God is maturing you in that. Doesn't mean he forced the trial on you. I'll never preach fatalism where everything that happens is because of God. I will preach his sovereignty where everything is allowed by God. Not everything happens because of God. But he does allow it in his sovereignty and he uses it to usher us into a deeper maturity. And so we took a look at that first and foremost in, in, in again, in joy and in trials. It's that tough juxtaposition. And he says that it's going to make us more aware. We're going to have to depend on him more. That's one of the great things about trials. We've all been through them. There's only one type of person in the room today. Someone that's coming out of, currently in, or unknowingly headed into a trial. It's the only type of person that exists. You're coming out of one, you're in one right now, or you're headed into one soon, right? It doesn't preach very well. So everyone's like, yay, great. It's a fallen, broken, fractured world. But he says that in those trials, you're going to rely on me more. Or he hopes that we're going to press into him more, not run from him, but run to him in the midst of trials. And so not only is God give us an opportunity to mature in our faith, but trials make us aware of our need for God. And then we talked about two fights that come with every trial. One is doubt in your faith, which is not sinful, by the way. We took a look at the gospel account where the father brings his demon stricken son. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that's a great prayer. Some of you think doubt means that you've lost faith. 
Doubt comes with faith in a fractured world. And so one of the fights that you're going to come across in trials is doubt. The other one is comparison. We just talked about Instagram last week. You should have been here. Okay? Comparison. When you're in a trial, everyone's life looks epic. And you scroll through Instagram and all you're looking at is the highlight reel. I can't st- they just have money coming out of their ears and everything's great and their relationship is awesome and their kids are doing great. You don't see the despair. No one takes a selfie when they're crying. No one takes a selfie when they're doubting their faith. And so James sets us up in that tension with trials. He comes into chapter two and we're just gonna scrape real fast. He talks about beware of personal favoritism in this first half. And I wanna do take, pull out one verse real quick. He talks about not treating people unequally, thank goodness, because Jesus himself doesn't treat people unequally. But real fast, it does say in verse 10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. And I want to build that into where we're going to pick up tonight, which is verse 14. And so if the arc of the whole Bible is that people are saved by faith, We have to begin by stating the obvious, but it can never be too obvious. James is not arguing that you add works to salvation. He can't be. He would be contradicting at least the seven verses I read and a host more. He cannot, he will not. Zach and I would be done preaching if this was the case. Because you've got all our sermons from the last couple years on tape, and we've been wrong. Tape, it's, it's an old word for record, never mind. And so on video and on DVD, we would have been wrong for three years straight, four years straight, five years straight. We'd have no place in the pulpit if that's what James was teaching. Because all we've been doing is ramming down the fact that you bring nothing to the gospel, right? And I smile because every day I'm a little more relieved that I bring nothing to the gospel. That God's in charge of the gospel, not me. James is not arguing that we need to add works to be saved. Because if he is, as that verse we read, the cross means nothing. His brother's death meant nothing. If we could achieve it by a measure of the law, by a measure of our works. If that's what he argues, the cross means nothing. We should take it down. Rather, what he is saying, listen, a genuine biblical faith inevitably produces works. A genuine biblical faith will result in works. It is not achieved by works. Look, when I'm at home, I don't know if you know this, I'm married. My wife's Carissa, just had a baby girl two weeks ago. I, and that's, that's why I've been blowing up your Instagram feed, by the way, with my little girl. Um, you're welcome. But uh, I love my wife. I didn't start doing the dishes so that I would love my wife. I didn't start vacuuming or or taking out the garbage so that I would love my wife. Because I love my wife, even when I don't want to, by the grace of God, I get a little better every day at doing the dishes. I tend to just soak for a couple days. Anyone else? 
I'm a soaker. She can't, she doesn't get it. I'm like, because then everything just comes off really easy in the dishwasher, right? I'm a so- I totally soak. I'll soak for three. I'll rewarm the water up the next day, right? Turn, it's, it's, it's a little cold. And also, let's heat that puppy back up again. Soak it another day, right? I, because I love my wife, I take the trash out. It did not result in me loving my wife, but loving my wife resulted in the outpouring of works in service to her. And so James is not arguing that we must add works to our salvation. Rather, a genuine biblical faith will inevitably produce works. He's not saying that you have faith without works. Not saying if you have faith without works, you need to add works. He's saying if you have a real faith, it will be a faith that produces works. Because some of you are going to start, we're going to read this passage real quick. Some of you are going to be like, all right, like, let's get to the list. Like, give me the list of the things, right? You want a list. We want things to do. Boss says, look, you're under evaluation. He's like, what am I going to be judged on, right? If you're in the work world, same thing. You get, you get to your classroom. It's like, look, everyone knows you're going to get an A through an F. Can you imagine if a professor was like, well, you're going to be great an A through an F. Figure it out. Just turn in whatever you want. Most of us wouldn't turn anything in, Right? You want what? You want a syllabus, don't you? At work, we want a list of expectations, right? I just flipped the new year at my job. I'm, I'm in the secular world. If you don't know me, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not a pastor full-time. I'm not on staff. Volunteer preaching pastor here on Sunday nights. So I walk right back into the secular workplace. It's a new year. I get a whole new set of goals. I get a whole new set of requirements. I get a whole new set of resources, all that sort of stuff. This is how I'm going to be evaluated in 12 months. And we want that a lot of times. We're like, look, I've got faith. This is all about works, so let me know which works I need to do so that, I, so that I can embed them into my faith, right? I'll give away the ending. There won't be a list. But there will be a challenge. There will be a challenge that if you profess a faith, <clears throat> James, the Bible will say, go ahead and show me then. And that's entirely appropriate. It's entirely appropriate. So let's get into it. We, well, let's, let's define two terms, faith and works. Sound good? It's, it's a great tactic in conversation. You have to define terms, okay? Faith is trusting and obeying God. Now, some of you are like, hold on, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. And obey. Here's where I got it, John 14, 23. A guy by the name of Jesus Christ, if you've heard of him, he said, if anyone loves me, if anyone loves me, notice he doesn't say if they, would, if they, if they can love me or if, if they'll be able to love me. He says, if anyone loves me, it starts with love. Now what's the outpouring of that? It says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Thank goodness he doesn't say, if someone keeps my word, he will love me. Bible is very specific in the order. It says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Doesn't that make you just warm and fuzzy? Are you kidding me? That's Jesus talking to you. But notice it is not, here's what you need to do so that you will love me. It says, if you love me, you will follow my commandments. And look, I hearken back to Ezekiel 36, where God's grace enters you, the Holy Spirit enters you. Even in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, I think 27, it says that he will give you a new heart and new desires and he'll cause you to walk in his statutes. 
Some of you don't like that. You're like, I'm in charge of everything. And God says, but when the Holy Spirit indwells you, he'll begin to take charge of everything. And so when the Holy Spirit indwells in you, the Bible says, word for word, cause you to walk in his statutes. And so Jesus himself says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Imperfectly, yes. None of what we're going to talk about assumes that you'll reach a state of perfection with either of these, loving God or obeying him. But by God's grace, through the sanctifying grace of God, the process that he has for you, you will grow in them every day. You will trust God more. You will obey God more if you truly are a Christian. And then works. So if faith is trusting and obeying God, works is a life of loving God and loving others. Where did I get that? Matthew 22, 36 through 40, a guy by the name of Jesus Christ, if you've ever heard of him, he says, this is the greatest commandment. He says, love the Lord God with all your heart. They asked him, the Pharisees, the religious people, the ones always talking about church, hashtag blessed always running the Bible study. They're in charge of religiosity. These folks are the religious all-stars. This is all-state, letter jacket, everything. They keep it. They keep the law. They say, okay, what's the greatest law then? They want to trick them. All right, you think you're a gangster on on the Old Testament? Go for it. What's the greatest law? Jesus says, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. I would submit to you that when we talk about works, we're talking about loving God, which results in loving people. Those without a faith in God try to love God by loving people first in hopes that they'll love God. If I love people, I'll I'll fall more in love with God. So they press into people and people fail them so they start to doubt God. If you have a problem with people in your life, go to your passionate love affair with God first. He will break you of that and cause you to love them in a better place. A lot of times we're just looking at the people, I gotta work this out. You need to work this out first. If only there was like a Christian symbol that sort of like <laughs> emulated the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationships that we should have. That'd be crazy. Someone should come up with that. And so it says this, that love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law. He says, look, all of that, the whole thing, love God and love people. Love God, love people. That's what I mean when I say this encompassing term of works. Imperfectly, yes. Never gonna love God perfectly. We're never gonna love people perfectly. But by the grace of God, every day, we're gonna be increasing. Does that make sense? Faith works. Faith is trusting and obeying God. Works is a life of loving God and loving others. And here's what he's going to declare here. We're going to get to the text. Three things. That faith without works is useless. That faith without works cannot save you. And all of a sudden you're like, hold up. If you're old enough, you know what that reference was just by the tone of my voice. <laughs> Hold up. Boom, boom. Only a few of you get it. Don't worry about it. I just, it's not in my notes. I just came up with that. Right? And so it says that faith without works is useless. Faith without works cannot save. We're going to spend some time there because you're confused. I'm confused at times. 
and faith without works is dead. Those are the three things that he's going to argue. And James is a smart guy and he knows what he's doing. And the Holy Spirit is seeing that he attacks those three things very systematically. So are we ready? Let's go. Verse 14 says this. It says, what does it profit? Say, what good is it? What good is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, you say you trust God and that you obey him, but you don't. How many of us do that? We say, I trust God. God is sovereign over my life and a trial hits. And people don't see you trusting God. It's not effectively ministering to a broken world. You're not even allowed it to, effect or, to effectively minister to you amidst that trial. That's why he sets up the whole book with trials. It's two-pronged. And so people can be ministered to through your trial when they see, like, I trust and I obey God. And then when they don't see you trusting God in the trial and obeying what he says, like, what good is that? What good is that? We're supposed to be reflecting the image of God, right? The Imago Dei set up in Genesis 1. says the image of God, that we reflect him. How are we reflecting that if we just talk about our faith, but no one sees it played out in front of them? So he says, what good is it? It's useless. Can faith save him? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked, he's going to give an illustration. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, And one of you says to them, depart in peace. Be warmed and filled, hashtag blessed. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? What good is it? What good is it? And I love this illustration. James is asking, what good is that faith? People are naked and without food. And in ancient times, this was a severe problem. Only in America, look, I don't mean to to be offensive, but only in America do homeless people have an obesity problem. It's not condemnation on anyone, but when they were homeless in old times, in in the ancient times, it meant they were outcasts. They didn't eat for weeks. He says, someone is naked in a desert cold. It's devastating. Even in the Middle East. Hungry, they're dying. And, and someone shows up. You know these people. Hey, be warm. Be blessed. You know what? Have some dinner. And then you just walk away. James says, what good is that? That's worthless. That's useless faith. That's a vain profession, which he's going to get into of this faith. It doesn't play out. It doesn't minister to a broken world. It doesn't allow you to be used by God to minister to a broken world. It allows you to come off with this vain saying, what can I just say? To sort of, how's everyone, everyone, is everyone blessed? We love, great, this, that. And that's why I'm just, I'm sick of the veneer of Christianity in America. Everything's great on Sunday. Donuts, sermon, music, ah, and devastating by Monday. And we don't talk about it. And we give this veneer Faith without works doesn't minister to those in need. Faith without works doesn't allow those who are called to help those in a time of need be used by God. It's a faith that's useless. It's functionally useless. Vain religious talk. I pulled out a huge chunk from Matthew on this because I wanted to to hone in on it. Because in the text it says, depart in peace. They always know the right thing to say, right? Like, oh, may a peace that surpasses all understanding be with you. It'll be great. 
Like, dude, what would surpass understanding is if I could get something to eat. I'll be warm and filled. You're good. Get out. It's useless faith. I think of Matthew 25, 31 through 43. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the holy of the angels with him, and then he sits on the throne of his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him. Stay with me on this. He says, and he will separate them one from another as shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. Listen. He will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Now they weren't saved by those things. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, I love that, the righteous, the religious people will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you? Hungry and feed you. Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer them and say, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. And he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil of his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I inappropriately attributed the righteous to the left hand, but it's on the right side. And he says to the people on the left, he says, depart from me, you cursed and everlasting, into the fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not feed me. Jesus says, there's two people. Those who say they believe, and it was clear that they did. And those who say that they believe, and it was clear that they did not. A true love for God translates into a love for people. Listen to me. A true love for God. Love God, love people. A true love for God translates into a love for people. If you are increasingly frustrated with people, it is because you are increasingly separating yourself from your relationship with God. Guaranteed. I know this to be true because it happens in my own life. When I get frustrated with people, it's because I'm removing myself from a passionate love affair with the creator. Farther I get from him, the more annoying people become. You notice that? You get closer to Jesus, you realize how annoying you are. These guys don't look so bad. Right? Might be the best thing I said all night. All right, here we go. So faith without works It's functionally useless. It does no good to a broken world, and it does no good for the person that's called to use the gifts of God to minister to a broken world. Second point, faith without works cannot save. Verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's something he repeats. We're gonna go through verse 25. It says, but someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. 
But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And here's where it gets really tough, but James is doing something purposely. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? You see, he's speaking to Jewish people. Remember, he's writing to the dispersion of the Christians after the persecution hit the church in Jerusalem and they scattered, they fled persecution. So these are converted Jews. He says, our father, Abraham, was justified by war. And that's, this starts to get tough. It says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that, that a man is justified by works and that seems tough and not by faith only. And the, the, the purest translation of the original language is, is by faith by itself. Faith by itself a profession of faith by itself, not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot or prostitute also justified by works? And we see those words again, justified by works. And we start to do a dance in our head. Stay with me. When she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Let's backtrack. It says, but some will say, And what he says is that some will say that faith and works aren't tied together at all. And I love this because somewhere in the Bible, someone has to take those people on, right? It's two sides to every spectrum. And, and, And the wealth of emphasis should be on people, right? That are saying that, look, the wealth of emphasis, you've got to fight the people that say, look, it's not grace alone, Right? Faith and work, look, there's, where he's going is that he's got to fight against the people that say they have nothing to do with each other. That's a clearer way of saying it. That faith and works are in no way tied together. Grace alone, faith alone, we understand that. But there's going to be a thread. It's called an antagonist. He enters the antagonist into the story. Essentially, this is someone that can come up and say, look, they are in no way tied together. I'm saved by faith alone, bro. You ask him to serve. I'm saved by faith alone. And we are saved by faith alone. But what kind of faith are we talking about? He's going to say there's a faith that doesn't produce works and that can't save you. Why? Because it's not a true, genuine biblical faith. People are going to try to disconnect and say there's, there's absolutely nothing. Those two are in no way intertwined and James has to address those people. So he says, the antagonist says, look, you have works and I have faith, right? And then James here is pressing me and says, all right, then show me. There's a classic illustration. I'm not going to do anything new. I'm going to do a classic illustration on this. It involves the chair that you're sitting in. Doesn't get more personal than that because you're pretty comfy and warm with that chair right now, aren't you? You didn't even think about this, but it took a degree of faith to sit in that chair, did it not? No one walked in here and was like sad and like assessed it. No one checked the screws. No, no, like, you know, kicked it a couple times. Hey, who manufactured this? What is this composite or is this actual, what is this thing? What's it made out of? 
right? No one, you just, you just, what did you do? You had faith that what was going to happen when you sat down? It's going to hold you, right? You just went, you had faith that that chair was going to hold you, okay? Anyone been to an antique store? Anyone have maybe parents or grandparents that have like that super old rocking chair, right? It's like, it's like super old school. It's got like rounded butt that had like engraved stuff in it. Like my mom had one too. It's like over time, you're just sort of like, I'm going to sit in that thing. Why? I don't really have faith in that thing. You walk into an antique store, you see one of those just wobbly, like old school, like, you know, Amish, super gnarly. It's like, eh. Someone's like, hey, have a seat. Just plop there and let's talk. You sort of be like, I don't know. You're fa- you're, right? You see what I'm getting at? Took a degree of faith to sit down. You didn't, might not have realized that, but I hope you do. I hope this week, every time you sit down, you think about that. Right? It takes a degree of faith to sit in a chair. You believe it'll hold you. And if you say that that, once I've elevated this now, and said, all right, we're talking about whether or not you trust that chair. Someone comes in and says, all right, I say, you trust that chair? I said, yeah, I trust that chair. I've got faith that chair holds me. All James is saying then, all right, sit down then. Sit down. No, I trust it. Have a seat. I get it. I can see, look, I understand the physics. I understand the engineering. You know, I did a little research. There's a Wikipedia page on chair construction. I sort of, I get it. I'm good. I'm, I'm, let's just talk standing up. You, you trust that chair will hold you? Yeah, yeah, it looks good. Good chair. I trust it. All right, sit down. No, I'm good. You have faith in that chair? I do. Sit down. Uh, we'll stand. James is just saying, look, have a seat. Sit down. James is saying, and this isn't a point about the chair, it's a point about the faith that believes and a faith that can act on that belief. James is simply saying, I have faith in that chair. So someone comes up and says, look, I've got faith, James. You've got your works. I've got faith. Saved by grace alone, bro. No biggie. James says, saved by grace. I've got faith in that as well. I have faith in that chair, James says. He says, you know what? I'll show you. And James sits down. Does that make sense? You say you've got faith in something. It's useless. But it can't support you unless you sit down. The faith in that chair can't support you. The chair is supporting you. Your faith alone even can't support you. It's who you put your faith in. Jesus can support you. He says, step into that. Step into service. I say by grace alone. Okay, if Jesus came to serve the world, how dare you think like you don't have to do anything? I'm a Christian, so you do what Jesus does? Yeah, how's that going? Have a seat, James says. Have a seat. And James knows that someone will come in and say, I know the chair will hold me. I've got faith in the construction of the chair. And that's why he says, even the demons believe. You see, what, what a lot of times happens, a lot of times it happens with preachers, a lot of times it happens with people that have grown up in the church like I have, is that we believe when we get to a certain place intellectually, once we comprehend and understand enough doctrine, how the chair is constructed, physics involved, mechanics, materials, once we understand it, then we're saved. We, we understand, it's this intellectual faith. 
James is saying, look, you may understand it. Even the demons believe. Look, you need to know this. Demons know more about the Bible than I do. Demons know more about Jesus than I do. They've seen him face to face. That's why they tremble. Demons have one of the highest Christologies in the Bible, the highest views of Christ, because they know exactly who they're dealing with. Created by him, kicked out of heaven by him. He says, look, it's one thing to say I believe in that chair. Heck, even the demons believe. They understand the doctrine of salvation. Doesn't mean they're saved. So even the demons believe and they tremble. And then he goes into Abraham and Rahab real briefly. Abraham revealed that he had faith in God by his offer or his willingness to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. As he walked Isaac, who he put on a donkey, as he walked him up to an altar and bound him, that effort did not save Abraham. It revealed that he was saved. God said, I'm going to give you an heir to Abraham. Are you kidding me? I get a boy. And through that heir, the world is going to be blown away. They're going to be so blessed. I promise you that. He's like, are you kidding me? It's amazing. And then God says, now trust me. Take that promise, walk up to an altar and slaughter it. It's had nothing to do with him being saved by works. It had everything to do with God revealing Abraham's faith by his works. And so Abraham walked his boy up there and he physically bound him. I've got kids. I can't imagine. I am, Abraham's probably weeping. The Bible doesn't say it, but I would imagine he's a human. He's a dad who'd been waiting for this boy and he's tying him up. Isaac's going, where's the rant? Oh no. But he trusted God and he was obeying him. And God provided, did he not? He brought a lamb. He brought a ram. That work did not save Abraham. It revealed that Abraham was indeed saved. And then Rahab, you gotta love that they've got a prostitute in here. This is terrific. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. Won't go into too much depth. A prostitute in Jericho, treated like, this is ancient times. They didn't treat women well to begin with. Second class citizens, third class citizens at best. Then you're a prostitute and no one aspires to be a prostitute. No little girl wants to be a prostitute. It's something that comes out of demonic, demoralizing, disgusting, evil circumstances. She is treated as property And Joshua is sending spies into Jericho to scout it out before they take it out. And I've been to the walls of Jericho. You can still go. They're in Israel, super deep in the ground. You can still see some of the original base of that wall that went down. And they send in spies. And can you imagine? Who knows what these spies will do to her? But she does what? She trusts God. She obeys God. When word gets out that the spies are in town, she takes them and she hides them and she redirects them out safely. This isn't why God saved her. It was evidence that God already had. 
Hiding spies. God's not like, if you hide them and you, and you get them out of there, you're good. You'll be with me forever in paradise. No. She was safe. She was gripped by God. She was in the hand of the father. And therefore said, look, I'm going to let a bunch of soldiers into my house. I'm a prostitute. Lord knows what they could do to me. Like every other man in the city does to me. She said, but I trust you. And it revealed her faith. It didn't add to it. Does that make sense? And so I, you got to love that James just goes to those. He's, looking, he's speaking to converted Jews, completed Jews. Let's talk about Abraham. Let's talk about Rahab. Beautiful illustrations. James is essentially saying, people say they are saved, but only the ones who show it truly are. And this is where it's tough. Because we could very well be sitting here and some of you have been saying you're Christian your whole life. A lot of pastors will tell you some of the most radical conversion stories are from people that grew up in the church. That just thought they knew. The assumed gospel, they call it. Really tough to preach in the South. Everyone's like, I love Jesus, of course. I've been going to church my whole life. The assumed gospel is incredibly dangerous. It almost like makes sense when a drug addict comes to to Jesus, right? It's like, dang, alone, destitute, stricken down, beast. But what about, what about the like straight B student that grew up in the church and has like a good job? May have never been exposed to the true gospel. That all have fallen short. Separated by one failure in the law. And so James says, people say they're saved. But we can discern that those who truly are are pouring the love into the people that God has been pouring into them. Loving God leads to loving people. And the third thing he's going to say in this last verse, verse 26, says, for as the body without the spirit, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So he says that, look, faith without works is useless Faith without works is not one that reveals that you're saved. Now he says faith without works is dead. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in his sermon in 1914, so just a couple years ago, the sermon was entitled Fruitless Faith. He was, Spurgeon was a, a pastor in London. I'll let, him, I'll let him describe this, this concept that faith without works is dead. He says, a tree has been planted out into the ground. And this is, a, this is classic. This is how Jesus used to do it too. He, he would get hyper-intellectual with people. He would get incredibly simplistic with people that all minister the same. Sometimes Jesus was like, yeah, it was a farmer and he had some seed, right? Spurgeon does the same thing. He says, a tree has been planted into the ground, which we can, all, we can all get it. We all see it. Seeds, I get it, cool. Thousand oaks, there's like at least a thousand oak trees here. I get the tree concept, right. A tree has been planted out into the ground. Now the source of life to that tree is at the root. Do we agree? Okay, there's the ground, there's the tree. The source of life is beneath the ground. So he says, now the source of life to that tree is at the root, whether it has apples on it or not. The apples would not give it life. 
but the whole of the life of the tree will come from its roots. But if that tree stands in an orchard, and when the springtime comes, there is no bud, and when the summer comes, there is no leafing and no fruit bearing, but the next year and the next, it stands there without butter blossom or leaf or fruit, you would say that tree is what? It's dead. Right? You would say it is dead, and you are correct. It is dead. It is not that the leaves could have made it live, but that the absence of the leaves is proof that it is dead. So too it is with the professor. It's not academics. The professor says, yeah, I'm a Christian. And James says, have a seat. I'm good. Ah, oh, see, now we're dealing with the roots. I'm, I'm, I've, I've got faith. All right? We'll see when spring comes. Right? So too it is with the professor. If he has life, actually it says if he hath life. We should bring that back, by the way. That life must give fruits. If not fruits, works. If his faith has a root, but if there be no works, then depend upon it the inference that he is spiritually dead is certainly a correct one. The inference that he is spiritually dead for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Works do not save you. Works reveal that you are saved. Works do not save you. Jesus saves you. Works reveal that Jesus has saved you. I don't want to be any more clear or any less clear than that. Works do not save you. Works reveal that you have been saved. Because when God pours into you truly, genuinely, as an image bearer of him, you cannot help but pour into others. You love him for what he has done, that we were created in his image. We rebelled against him. Knowing that our eternal trajectory in the garden was fellowship and community with God forever. And when we rebelled from him, it recalibrated to eternal damnation. And there is nothing we can do to recalibrate our eternal trajectory. Like a a child being tossed in the waves. Ill-equipped, unable to save himself. Unless someone reaches into the water and pulls you out then God himself had to come into the world to recalibrate the eternal trajectory of those who would simply say, I believe. And when they are saved, the Holy Spirit will see to it that you trust God more, that you obey God more, that you love God more and you love people more. It's the ridiculous picture of the cross that the world gets to see before him. Reflecting the image of God in the Imago Dei. It's not the apple 
that saves the tree. It's not the leaves that save the tree. The apple and the leaves are but evidence that the tree has been made alive. And our faith is alive. Why? Because Jesus is alive. We put no faith in dead bones. If they find Jesus' bones, I will quit tomorrow. And if the world finds him, you better believe Time Magazine does the story. You better believe every website has it front page for months. If they find his bones, I'll quit. Our faith is alive for one reason. Our king is alive. This is the only reason that our faith is alive. And in some, something that God gave me minutes before the sermon, Hebrews 10, 8 through 14. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, Jesus speaking, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that way, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's why we're gonna have communion tonight. That's why we have communion every Sunday night. One time, check this out, once and for all. He says this, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The Old Testament picture is this. People would come to the priest, they would unload all their crap. They would come to church, he would meet them at the door and say, what have you done? Good to see you again, by the way. It's been four hours. You're back. And I've done this. And the priest would take their burdens and he would walk them into the Holy of Holies where they couldn't go. Before God, that was his role, ordained of God. And what he's saying is that all day they did this. All day they did this. Repeatedly. And it says that it couldn't take away their sin. It was ordained of God. The sacrificial system was ordained of God, but it couldn't be a solution. It was just a picture. And so the priests would come and they would take the sin and they would drop it off before God. And he says that they were up all day doing this. All day the priests walking around, taking the burdens, taking it before God. All day, all day, all day. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly for the same sacrifice which cannot take away sins. But this man, Jesus, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice, one time, One time, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, say forever, 
Now say it like you mean it. Say forever. forever. One sacrifice for sins forever. Jesus, this priest, he says he did what? He sat down. Bible says he sat down. While the priests were in a fury up all day, Jesus says one time and then he sits. Jesus sits down. He says he sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. He has perfected those who are being sanctified. Perfected. You're saved. And now, through our works, we're being sanctified. Works do not save. They reveal that you are saved. Why? Because Jesus sat down. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I'm mindful that you and your glorified body right now are in a position of rest. Unlike the priests of the Old Testament, fervently running back and forth, mediating the relationship between man and God, you did that in one sacrifice for all sins for all time and then you sat down Jesus you said it best when you said it is finished our salvation is complete in you and because we are complete in you we desire to reflect you by serving as you served. Holy Spirit, would you go to work on your people tonight? If some are here tonight who haven't accepted you into their heart, would you do so tonight? For those who can hear my voice, if you haven't accepted the Spirit of Christ Jesus, I pray that you would tonight. A profession doesn't do it. A vain profession of faith doesn't do it. Saying you're Christian doesn't do it. Inviting the Holy Spirit in to regenerate you is what makes us complete. Jesus, thank you that we add nothing to this. But because we add nothing to this, we're willing to show a broken world what you've done for us. And so I pray that that would be made clear in the hearts of your people tonight as we go into a time of, of, of music and singing and celebration to a king who is not dead, who is not in the tomb, who is alive right now, seated on his throne and can hear every single one of our voice tonight as we sing to him. Jesus, the only reason our faith is alive is because you are alive. And I pray that you would then now bring us to life as your body as well. Put on mission, not for our own glory, but for yours alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.